This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Today is Wednesday, August 28th, 2019. On this day in 1955, a 14-year-old black boy was abducted from his bed by two white men, beaten and murdered. The teenager's brutal lynching was widely publicized and brought new life to the civil rights movement, galvanizing the Emmett Till generation. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we tell a timely story from true crime history, then analyze the historical impact of that day's events. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today marks the anniversary of the brutal lynching of Emmett Till. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Before we dive into the ramifications of one of the most shocking murders in the history of the American South, let's go back to Chicago on the morning of August 28, 1955. The sun wasn't even up yet. Mamie Till Mobley still clung to the edge of sleep, But once she realized the phone was ringing, she sat upright, alert. No one would call this early unless it was an emergency. Her son, Emmett, was down in Mississippi visiting family. Something must have happened. Mamie said a fearful prayer before picking up the receiver. Her aunt wailed on the other end and confirmed Mamie's dread. They took him. They took Emmett. She told Mamie that Emmett and his second cousin had gone to the dime store a few nights before. When they were leaving, Emmett whistled at the white woman working behind the counter. Just a joke, but it scared her. Then, in the early hours of the 28th, the woman's husband and brother showed up at the house with a gun, demanding that Emmett come with them. Mamie's uncle tried to stop them, offered them money, but they wanted blood. That was hours ago. The uncle was still too scared to call the police. Mamie barely heard the words that followed. Her ears were ringing. She felt like her heart could either explode or stop entirely. 
She'd told her son before the trip how life in the South was years behind what he knew in Chicago. Mississippi was still the world according to Jim Crow. She'd warned him, taught him how to avoid trouble. She'd warned him, and still, they'd stolen her only son away from her, most likely killed him for a whistle. Heartbroken and in shock, Mamie waited for the call, confirming what she already knew to be true. In the meantime, her uncle finally notified the police. Officers questioned the two white men who abducted Emmett, but they claimed they let Emmett go after giving him a talking to. Still, no one could find the teenager. Three days later, the phone rang again. Emmett's body was found in the Tallahatchie River. He had been beaten past the point of recognition. They could only identify him by a ring inscribed with his initials. But Mamie couldn't let herself dissolve into grief. She had work to do. She wasn't going to let her child's murder be covered up. Mamie told her uncle to send Emmett's body home, as is. She needed to know exactly what happened to her son. When Mamie entered the mortuary to view the body, the stench of death was worse than she expected. It did nothing to dampen the unimaginable sight that waited for her. Her teenager was so brutalized, one of his eyes gouged out, one of his ears partially cut off, the back of his head caved in. It made Mamie wonder why they even bothered shooting him through the temple. It was clearly a waste of a bullet. She knew that nothing she said or wrote would ever be able to convey this senseless horror. She instructed the funeral director that Emmett's service would be open casket. Do not prettify him. Leave him just as he is. Mamie told him firmly, let the people see what they did to my boy. That night, Mamie slowly entered the funeral home, supported on either arm by her father and her uncle. A crowd of more than 10,000 people swarmed outside, several of them journalists and photographers. They were here to serve witness. Now, Mamie took her final steps towards Emmett's open coffin. The funeral director had been forced to place a pane of glass over the body to contain the smell. But if that was the only way the world would see, so be it. Mamie had pushed her grief down through all the organizing, fueled by her anger, determined to find some meaning in her son's death. When she reached the coffin, the reality of her loss flooded in. Her only son, gone forever. Her baby boy, now a martyr. Mamie fell to her knees and wept. After this, we'll look at the long-ranging ramifications of Emmett Till's murder. Now, back to the story. In the years since August 28, 1955, 
Emmett Till's murder and funeral have been identified by many scholars as the spark that reignited the modern civil rights era. In 1955, segregation and black oppression were still largely seen as a Southern problem. The shocking photos of Emmett's open casket made the entire black community pay attention, as Mamie Till Mobley intended. The lynching of a 14-year-old was everyone's problem, North or South. It was too horrible to ignore. Jet Magazine, a publication primarily marketed to black readers, was the main source of coverage on Emmett's murder, funeral, and the subsequent trial of his killers, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. Jet's cover story on Emmett sold so many copies in the first week, they printed a reissue. The magazine was instrumental in broadcasting the story to the country and the world. The two Jet journalists, Moses Newson and Simeon Booker, even helped track down a key witness for Bryant and Milam's murder trial. The witness testified that the men roughly questioned him the day before Emmett's death, asking for his whereabouts. Bryant and Milam were spurred on by Bryant's wife, Carolyn. She said Emmett was inappropriate with her when he came into the store where she worked as a cashier. There is still debate about what exactly happened between Emmett and Carolyn. She testified at trial that when they were alone in the store, he asked for two cents worth of bubblegum. When she handed Emmett the candy, he closed his hand around hers, squeezed it, and asked, How about a date, baby? Carolyn yanked her hand away and tried to leave through the gap in the counter, but said that Emmett blocked her path and grabbed her waist. She alleged that he uttered obscenities and told her not to be scared of him because he dated white women before. At that point, Emmett's cousin, Simeon Wright, entered the store and saw the situation. He dragged Emmett back outside, and Carolyn followed a few steps behind, heading for her car to retrieve a gun from the trunk. As Emmett and his cousin loaded into their own car to drive away, Carolyn said Emmett whistled at her. But Simeon Wright disputed this account of events. He alleged Emmett was alone in the store with Carolyn for less than a minute. He explained, During that time, I don't know what he said, but when I was in there, he said nothing to her. She was behind the counter, so he didn't put his arms around her or anything like that. As she was going to her car, he did whistle at her, that's what scared her so bad. The only thing that I saw him do was whistle. Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam went on trial for murder in September of 1955. Newspaper coverage described the proceedings as fairly informal. Members of the jury drank beer as they heard testimony over the course of five days. After an hour of deliberation, Bryant and Milam were found not guilty and released. The verdict sparked outrage and protests in Mississippi and the South at large. It galvanized a new wave of black activism to seek justice and equality. 
Four months after Emmett's funeral, Rosa Parks refused to give up her bus seat, launching the Montgomery bus boycott. What followed was a resurgence of peaceful protests, marches, and sit-ins. Emmett's death was another reminder that the resistance did not need to resort to violence to effect change. Their oppressors would supply the bloodshed themselves, voluntarily exposing their vitriol and racism for the world to see. In her thesis paper on the impact of Emmett Till's death, Rebecca Sherman of Salve Regina University described the police response to a peaceful protest in Alabama on May 3, 1963. She wrote, Hoses and police dogs were turned on the demonstrators as soon as they left the church. The water hit with enough force to rip bark off of trees. It knocked people down, slammed them into curbs and over parked cars. The scene was described as a war zone. Emmett's death particularly affected black teens and preteens of the mid-1950s. They saw themselves in Emmett. What happened to him could happen to any of them or their friends or their siblings. As activist and author Anne Moody explained, Before Emmett Till's murder, I had known the fear of hunger, hell, and the devil. But now there was a new fear known to me, the fear of being killed just because I was black. This ushered in a wave of young black activism that hadn't been seen previously. Civil rights activist Joyce Ladner described these young people as the Emmett Till generation. This generation came of age in the early 1960s and applied the lesson of Emmett's death to their cause. Activist Cleveland Sellers was 11 when Emmett died. He remembered bringing the jet cover story to school to discuss with his classmates, trying to make sense of it. They felt their own lives were at risk unless they did something to change the status quo. These conversations spurred Sellers to later join the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. The organization helped plan student-led sit-ins and had a hand in the 1963 March on Washington, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. In 2008, over 50 years after Emmett's death, Carolyn Bryant recanted her statement about what happened that day in August of 1955. She told Timothy B. Tyson, author of The Blood of Emmett Till, that Emmett didn't grab her waist or say anything obscene. She said, quote, You tell these stories for so long that they seem true, but that part is not true. Nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 
Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Today in True Crime is written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 